uh, everyone coming together on a clear path uh, for Ukrainian accession uh, to NATO uh, when conditions allow. Also want to highlight what good news it is to have seen the um, uh, forward movement on welcoming in uh, Sweden uh, to NATO. That's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau at the NATO summit that is currently underway in Europe. And as you heard, um, Sweden has been approved for membership in NATO. And now the focus is on Ukraine and what might happen there as to when that invitation may be extended. Should it be extended? What's the timeline look like? What conditions need to be met? Um, there's a lot of questions that need to be asked. Chris Alexander is a former deputy head of mission of the Canadian Embassy in Moscow, a Canadian cabinet minister. He's currently a distinguished fellow of the Canadian International Council and the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Um, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. I really do appreciate your time. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. Interesting process here. I think Sweden was, uh, we knew that was going to happen. It was just a matter of how long it would take. But the uh, situation surrounding Ukraine, you characterize it um, as um, an opportunity for NATO to correct a, correct a series of historic wrongs, right? So uh, let's go through them. When did it all start? When did NATO start to get it wrong regarding Ukraine? Well, remember after um, the... Cold War ended, the Soviet Union broke up, the Warsaw Pact was dismantled. There were waves of expansion of NATO, <clears throat> and they were controversial at the time. Poland, uh, Czechoslovakia as it then was, Hungary joined, uh, and then you had the Baltic states, uh, Bulgaria, Romania joining, and, and more recently you've had uh, smaller states like Macedonia joining, bringing the total to 30. Um, but basically since 2003, that process uh, petered out, and, and there wasn't a serious effort to look at bringing uh, countries that had been part of the Soviet Union, such as Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, Georgia, in until uh, the Bucharest summit in 2008. And there was actually a promise made, you can see it in the declaration, uh, to, to bring Georgia and Ukraine into NATO. Uh, but after 2008, behind closed doors, France and Germany decided that was a bad idea. The U.S. went along with that. And the message sent to the Kremlin, to Moscow, was the coast is clear. This is not going to happen. Uh, we are going to use force to uh, reestablish our empire. And, and so they did that. A few months later, they invaded Georgia. Mm -hmm. uh, they were very active in Syria. And then the invasion of Ukraine came in 2014. So NATO expansion, NATO enlargement, NATO as a tool to prevent uh, invasions and large-scale violence in Europe ran out of steam in 2008. And that, in my view, was a mistake. And, and it actually sort of, like you say, it fueled that, that rise of dictators and, and warlords and all the rest. They fell into that gap. Exactly. Uh, I mean, the... the uh, lots of people have been making this observation recently, coming going into this Vilnius summit, that Na uh, Ukraine, Georgia, and other countries fell into a kind of gray zone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There was no there was no clarity about whether anyone would come to their defense, help them if they're invaded, and the Kremlin took advantage of that strategic ambiguity. And so the challenge this week is to resolve that ambiguity. Yeah. No one expects Ukraine to become a member of NATO this week, even Sweden. It's going to take a bit longer. But there needs to be a clear signal that we support uh, Ukraine's goals in this war, which are to uh, have victory, to expel Russian troops from all of its territory, 
and that alongside that, we're going to start integrating Ukraine into NATO so that this kind of invasion never happens again. And you outlined sort of three steps that could set some of these wrongs to right. Uh, and like you say, first of all, obviously, is getting Ukraine into NATO. But like you say, that's going to take some time. So what do we need to do in the immediate uh, vis-a-vis the war? I mean, what that that's job one, right? Win the war. Absolutely. And, and uh, we haven't done enough is is the main conclusion everyone needs to take home. The U.S. has done the most, but they've been slow to supply air power and long-range fires to hit Russian ammunition dumps and headquarters far back from the front. Uh, I mean, NATO has never gone into combat, whether in Kosovo or Afghanistan or elsewhere, without air power. Why would we expect Ukraine uh, to do the same, you know, to fight an even larger war against a bigger army uh, without having modern fighter jets. So that needs to be addressed. Uh, they need more support in the Black Sea, where uh, Russia has effectively blockaded Ukrainian ports uh, and, and kept the Black Sea from, uh, from, from, uh, from, from being a place where freedom of navigation is observed. Being functional, uh, yeah. That's, ag- that's against international law. That's a blockade. That's an area where NATO could help out because Ukraine has a very small fleet. Um, and then, you know, we're all providing these weapon systems to Ukraine. They need more. They need more armor. They need more artillery. They need more ammunition. Uh, NATO could, uh, you know, NATO still doesn't have a mission under NATO command that is helping officially uh, Ukraine. We're all doing it in our national capacities. Mm-hmm. The United States is facilitating. NATO has a huge infrastructure that could be used. To, to deliver these supplies and these weapons more efficiently uh, to Ukraine, I think we should do that. And we should also uh, use NATO as a framework in which to train Ukrainian forces. We're all doing that. Canada in Lithuania, Poland, uh, and other places. We used to do it on the territory of Ukraine, and I think the time is coming when we should revisit that and, and help Ukraine train the people, the soldiers it needs, on their own territory which is more efficient uh, and and will give them more combat power more quickly. What about Canada specifically? What should we be doing as part of this? I mean, of course, you know, we're involved in the alliance and, you know, what we do matters. What should Canada be doing, like, right now to to sort of tip the scales? Two things, Shay. We we should be giving more of the military support we have. We're one of the foremost allies with light-armored vehicles, uh, we call them LAV-3s, Coyotes, Bisons. We have hundreds of them that are going to be decommissioned. We should be giving them straight away to Ukraine. Uh, they need them. They need to move their uh, infantry around safely. We have the tools to do that. I, I really don't understand why we haven't. In addition, we should be helping them go shopping for the things they need. Uh, relatively small allies like Denmark, uh, Norway, um, the Netherlands have put money forward to help Ukraine buy the artillery, the ammunition, uh, and the other uh, munitions and, and, and weapon systems that they need. Uh, Canada could, should be leading that charge. Our, our contribution on the military front has been modest. We're among the lowest uh, ranking NATO allies in terms of the percentage of our GDP that we've given to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. A country like Denmark, much smaller than Canada, has actually given more. They've given 
virtually their entire defense budget to Ukraine as a sign of how much importance they attach to this. Uh, we could do much more. And secondly, we should be increasing our commitment to defense. We're down below 1.3 percent. Yeah. Uh, that that's the lowest ever or the lowest in our lifetimes. Uh, we, we need to we need to get back to where we have been traditionally, which is uh, a strong ally. And that means two percent. Uh, Chris, I've only got a minute, but you mentioned Denmark and the fact that they're contributing their entire defense budget and how important it is to them. That's what it's, I mean, we, we talk about Ukraine and yes, that's important, but it also talks about liberal democracy in Europe and, and how that's what this alliance will become ultimately and how, you know, if you've got democratic countries that need support, you support them. Exactly. And, and let's be clear here. Uh, Ukraine has the right to defend itself. We have the right to support them. Collective self-defense is the principle that's yeah. uh, bringing all the support to Ukraine, and it's the principle underlying NATO. So we're doing what we've always done by supporting Ukraine. And as you say, it's not just uh, democracy in Europe and North America that are at stake. It's the future of democracy in the whole world. Yeah. The eyes of the world in Asia, Africa, the Americas, and of course Europe are on Ukraine. This is going to send an important signal. Victory would send a very powerful, positive signal. We need to contribute more strongly to get there. Chris, great insight. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it very much.